0: Let me begin by saying what a tremendous privilege it is to be here with you this morning. And I want to extend my thanks especially to Pastor Gallagher and the session for the invitation to preach on this Reformation Day worship service. My text this morning comes from the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6. I'll be preaching from verses 1 to 8. Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8, hear now the word of God. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Ba'or, answered him. And what happened from Shatim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me? Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you attend the reading and the preaching of your word with your spirit uh, so that you might deepen our faith in the Son of God who died for us, rose for us, and lives for us even today. Would you do this work for we ask in his name, amen. Amen. On February 15th, 1546, three days before his death, Martin Luther ascended the pulpit of the church in Eisleben. As it so happened, he was passing through this city of his birth, and he had opportunity to open the word of God, and he chose as his text Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, and he focused in particular on Jesus's words, in which he said, "I thank you, Father, that Lord of Heaven and Earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children." Typical of Luther, he began to develop his theology of glory, and contrasting it with the theology of the cross. A theology of glory and the theology of the cross. The theology of glory in this case pertained to those who would make great claims to wisdom, popes and emperors, kings and lords, but who were in reality those to whom the kingdom was hidden. In contrast, uh, the theology of the cross pertain to those who were poor in spirit, the meek, the lowly, the faithful. It is to such as these that God chose to reveal his son and to give his kingdom. But towards the end of his final sermon, his words take a sharp and pointed turn as Luther begins to rebuke and chastised the congregation there in Isleben. He chastised the people for forgetting the gospel that they had at one time so eagerly embraced. The people of Isleben, like so many others who had once received with joy the freedom that came from the Reformation's recovery of the doctrines of grace, they were once again... Making pilgrimages to relics. Once again, devoting themselves to the very superstitions that the Reformation had rejected. They had, in some respects, forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten the the means of grace, the recovery of which stood at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, the simple preaching of the word the faithful administering of the sacraments, these realities had begun to ring hollow in the ears and to have little effect on the hearts of the Christians there in Eisleben. And Luther did exactly what we would expect him to do. He confronted the church with their sin. Confronted them with their lukewarm affections, with their wandering allegiances. He confronted them with the truth of God and the gospel of Christ. In his words, oh, people say, what is that? After all, there is preaching every day, often many times every day, so that we grow weary of it. What do we get out of it? All right, go ahead, dear brother, he said. If you don't want God to speak to you every day at home in your house and in your parish church, church, then be wise. Look for something else. In Trier is our Lord God's coat. In Achan are Joseph's pants and our Blessed Lady's undergarment. Go there and squander your money and buy indulgences and the Pope's secondhand junk. These are valuable things. You have to go far for these things and spend lots of money, leave house and home standing idle. Bored by the word of God preached, tired of the Bible being read in their homes, they yearned for something more exciting. In Trier, is Jesus' coat. Go there, Luther said. In Achan, we can see Joseph's pants. Years earlier, another reformer, a prophet by the name of Micah, adopted a very similar posture and preached a very similar message to a people struggling with a very similar thing. The prophet in the text before us this morning, announces that Israel has forgotten God's love, that they had grown weary of the good news of the gospel and had, in effect, rejected God's grace. They ha- though they had time and again witnessed, time and again experienced God's deliverance, they time and again have fallen away from trusting God And they've fallen away from the righteousness and justice that was to set them apart as a holy people, a righteousness and a justice that stood at the very heart of God's covenant with them. In Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, we witness what is in a, a very real sense a courtroom scene. There's throughout these these verses an abundance of legal terminology. The words here translated, plead your case. It's one word in Hebrew. The word indictment, the word contend, all of these words are at home in the court of law. These terms don't refer to a complaint based on an annoyance. God isn't grieved that his people have broken uh, a form of etiquette. God is bringing a lawsuit against his people for their violation of a solemnly sworn covenant, a promise, an agreement. And the prophet is summoning God's people to court. God summons his people to court. And we overhear God prosecuting them in these verses. But for what? For what offense? Well, for their unresponsiveness to His Word. For their indifference to His love, a love that has been expressed in more ways than they could ever count. They had forgotten. And God's prophet calls them out, and He calls them back. He calls them out, and He calls them back even in his prosecution, in which he is laying before the people of God their offenses, God is offering his forgiveness. Through his prophet, he is showing his people the way back, the way back to full communion with him, the way back to unbroken fellowship with their gracious God. And so I want to consider with you this morning These verses, as they unfold in the drama, the courtroom drama of God and his people, and the first part of which is a subpoena. Did you see it? In verses one and two, we have a divine subpoena. The very first word is addressed to Israel and it serves as an official summons. Hear what the Lord says. The Lord then turns to his prophet And prosecutor, Micah, and he commands him, he says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Now, when it comes to jury selection, the mountains and the hills are probably not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of ideal witnesses, But this is essentially the role that the mountains and the hills and the foundations of the earth are called upon to play in the courtroom drama. They are called to hear the charges and to bear witness to their truthfulness. We have in English the expression, if walls could talk. Have you heard that? Oh, if walls could talk. The implication of which is that if what was done in secret were made known, then the truth would come out. The truth that we all suspected but couldn't prove would be brought to light. If the walls could talk, then we would have the evidence. In the mountains and in the hills and in the foundations of the earth, we have these witnesses. Witnesses whose age and whose permanence and whose presence qualifies them to speak and to render an accurate verdict. And the verdict would be perfectly clear. Guilty. Guilty. Because they were there. Don't you see? They were there when the lord entered into covenant with israel they were there when israel heard the terms of the covenant and they swore in response all of this we will do they were invoked as witnesses to this covenant relationship by moses himself deuteronomy 32 moses sings give ear o heavens i will speak and let the ear hear earth i'm sorry let the earth hear the words of my mouth here, again in Micah, the heavens and the earth, the foundations of the earth and the hills are, are called upon to bear witness to the truth of God's prosecution. Now, the fact of the matter is God doesn't need a courtroom drama, does he? God doesn't need a drama to adjudicate his adjudicate His case against Israel or his case against us God doesn't need a jury or a judge to render a perfectly just verdict God is truth itself God is the very definition of truth he can no more speak falsehood he can no more twist the truth he can no more tell a lie or render an unjust verdict than he can stop being God and so we might ask the question why all the drama right why all the drama what we need to see in this courtroom drama is god's condescension to his people in the drama god is stooping down to the level of his people a level that is finite a level of a sinful people so that they in all their finitude and in all their sin might understand. God enters into a legal dispute with Israel so that he can make his point abundantly clear. God stoops, you see, so that his faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness, his perfect righteousness and Israel's wickedness might be made evident, perfectly evident to all and especially to them. It's a bit like an intervention. An intervention when everyone around the addict sees the problem except the addict himself. God here marshals his witnesses. He sets forth his evidence in order to set plainly before his people the reality of their sin, the greatness of their Offense, And to what end? He prosecutes his people to save his people. God's purposes are salvific. He confronts Israel with her sin so, so she might turn from it and live. One Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walkie, put it like this. He says that the Lord, quote, initiates the trial not to condemn Israel, but to save them. So also he confronts mortals with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to condemn them, but to save them. Before we even hear the substance of the prosecution, the very fact that God takes his people to court carries in it a message in itself. Israel's sin is indisputable. Her guilt is clear. It's evident to any and all who would consider the evidence impartially. God doesn't need a witness, does he? But God's people benefit from these witnesses as they reveal to them, as they reveal to us the uh, clarity and the reality of our sin and wickedness and offense. We need God to stoop down to us, to set our sin clearly before us. Why is that? Because we are so skilled, aren't we, at denying, at excusing, at self-justification. We begin to believe our own lies but God here is saying in effect if even by the standards of creation your guilt is perfectly evident how much more so before the divine court we may think that our sins are small and are therefore insignificant or we may think that they are atoned for merely by the passage of time but the prophet Micah here reminds us that God both sees and knows and he reminds us that there is nothing hidden from God. Our secret thoughts, our deepest motivations, these are all laid bare before God and his judgments are perfectly just. Israel was certainly not the only nation in her day harboring wickedness at the highest levels of society. She certainly was not the most oppressive, uh, nor was she the most violent of nations in the Near East of her day. But what this reminds us of here is that God's people are not exempt from his judgment. God's righteous judgment applies equally to his church as it does to the nations outside. It is not enough, you see, to have witnessed God's mighty acts of salvation. It is not enough to have outwardly benefited from God's mighty acts of salvation. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us, those who experienced God's deliverance from Egypt nevertheless perished in the wilderness on account of their sin. They perished in the wilderness on account of their lack of faith. Because if the substance of God's saving acts, namely Christ himself, is not received by faith, if that gospel message that is preached by every act of deliverance, if this is not believed with the heart, then brothers and sisters, it is of no eternal value. It is of no value. And the same is true for us today. It does us no good to hear the prophetic word and think that it is only for the non-believers out there. We need to hear it as a church, and we need to hear it knowing that we, like Israel, are also prone to waywardness, prone to forgetfulness, prone to wickedness and unbelief, and therefore we too must hear the call to turn and by faith to repent and find refuge in the only place where it may be found. We see not only a divine subpoena, we also overhear the divine prosecution. We see this in verses three to five. The prosecution begins in verse three as God sets forth his case against his people. What is this case? Here it is. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. It's a charge that many have pointed out sounds much more like a defense than an accusation, doesn't it? God is asking his people, what have I done to you exactly to deserve your, your scorn, your rejection? God demands an answer. What precisely has the Lord done to Israel to weary them? I suspect that the prophet may have paused after this line to give Israel a moment to consider their answer. How would they respond? Well, pause or no pause, God suggests some possible answers. And these answers serve as evidence for the prosecution. He says in verse 3, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. This last phrase, the righteous acts of the Lord, Is a a summary of what all of these events are. What are they? They, These are the righteous acts of the Lord. God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. His guiding of them through the wilderness and his bringing them safely to the promised land. All of this served this fundamental purpose of expressing plainly God's accusation. That you might know. This was God's goal in all of it, that Israel might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Needless to say, God's goal in rehearsing Israel's history is not to remind them of interesting bits of their past, but to transform their lives in the present. By preaching God's goodness to his people in the past, by reminding them of his faithfulness to his covenant promises, God's goal is to transform the hearts and the lives of his people. That Israel might know him that Israel might know him as their savior and as their deliverer. Consider the evidence briefly with me. With mighty signs and wonders, God revealed himself to be stronger than the strongest nation in the known world, the nation of Egypt. With these same signs and wonders, he revealed himself as superior To the greatest of the so called gods of the Egyptian pantheon. The Pharaoh, who had sought to destroy Israel in an ethnic genocide, was himself humiliated and publicly defeated at the Red Sea when Israel was enslaved. When Israel was without a hope in this world, God raised them to new life. He delivered them from their bondage and from their oppression. He set them free. And He asks them Was that it? Is that what you find so wearisome? Was it this deliverance, a deliverance that astonishes the mind for its glory and wonder that you find to be wearisome? Next, God brings forward as evidence his provision of Moses and Aaron and and Miriam. These were, were Israel's leaders who who led God's people in their journey through the wilderness, they would serve Israel faithfully as guides, teaching them the law, speaking to them God's word, revealing to them God's will. Perhaps it was these, God asks. These leaders without whom Israel would never have made it to the promised land. Maybe it was these that burdened God's people. Next, God calls to mind the events on the plains of Moab when Balak, the king of Moab, summoned Balaam to come and to curse Israel. The significance of this event might not be immediately apparent to us in our context, but it would have been perfectly plain to Israel in Micah's day. Israel's superior military might had subdued all the surrounding nations such that when the king of Moab looked at Israel, he knew that his own army didn't stand a chance and so he at great cost calls in an internationally renowned diviner by the name of Balaam, son of Baor. This would be in effect the king bringing into his army and his camp a weapon of mass destruction. The reason the prophet can be so vague in his description of what took place is because every single Israelite in his day would have known exactly what he was referring to. It was an unforgettable episode in Israel's history in which God turned the curse of the most powerful diviner in the known world into a blessing not once, not twice, not even three times, but four times, God revealed to Israel his unchangeable purposes to bless his people. His purposes are so settled, are so sure, that not even the most powerful magician, diviner, can change the mind of Israel's God. Balak's Balaam's curses are transformed into blessings because God had promised to bless Israel and to bless the world through them. The final piece of evidence that God brings forward sounds at first like little more than an itinerary. Did you see it? It's there in verse five. He says, and what happened from Shatim to Gilgal. Well, what did happen from Shittim to Gilgal? Shittim was the last place that Israel camped on the west side of the Jordan, just outside the promised land. And Gilgal was the first place they encamped inside the promised land. Outside the promised land to inside the promised land. However, when we understand the significance of these places in Israel's history, what we discover is that this is perhaps the most compelling and most devastating evidence of all because it was at Shittim that many Israelites yoked themselves sexually, if not in marriage, to Moabite women. And as it always does, this resulted in Israel yoking themselves not only to These women as their wives, but to their deities as well. We read in Numbers chapter 25 that the daughters of Moab invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Paor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Do you see the significance of Shatim? It's like the episode of the spies all over again. Remember the spies right outside the promised land. They're so close. And because of their faithlessness, they forfeit the blessing of the promised land. And here we are again, the second generation, right there on the edge of the promised land. And what happens? Again, can you believe it? Again, great sin. What happened from Shatim to Gilgal? Let me give you the short answer. Great sin and great grace. That's what happened from Shatim to Gilgal. Shatim represented Israel's great sin for which they should have been destroyed, fallen like their forefathers in the wilderness in a conflagration of God's judgment east of the Jordan outside the promised land but don't you see that Gilgal inside the promised land stands as an abiding witness to the greatness of God's grace a grace which made a way for a sinful people prone to idolatry to arrive safe on Canaan's side God would again part the waters, this time the Jordan River, and Israel would again pass through these waters of God's judgment and by God's grace arrive safely in the promised land. It's a remarkable rehearsal of God's goodness towards his people. God's saving acts, which were as astonishing then as they are astonishing to us today, and as we are astonished yet again at the, this rehearsal, don't forget the context. What is the context? Which of these, or countless others, acts of God's grace or mercy has Israel found so wearisome? So boring, so tiresome, that they began to think, we can do better elsewhere. We would think that a nation that had experienced so great and so many deliverances would have more readily and more devotedly entrusted themselves to their great God in acts of worship, in acts of faithfulness and loyalty, and in acts of obedience. And so it's easy for us, I think, to look at Israel from a position of superiority and to think to our read these accounts of god's faithfulness and israel's unfaithfulness and to think to ourselves tisk tisk there she goes again ungrateful faithless perennially forgetful of god's saving grace toward them but the sad reality brothers and sisters is that we too are prone to such forgetfulness forgetfulness no less surprising and no less appalling. Before we look down our noses at Israel from a position of superiority, we must remember that we are in fact in a superior position. And yet, we do the same thing more often than we would care to admit. The fact of the matter is that God could put similar questions to each of us What is it that I have done to deserve your doubt? What have I done to deserve your waning affections and your lukewarm loyalties? Was it when the eternal Son of God took on flesh and entered into the sorrows and suffering of your sin cursed world? Was it when Jesus healed and restored and mended and raised to life those living under the shadow of death? Was it when the Son of God, the King, brought near the kingdom of God? Or was it when the creator of the world, the King of the Jews, hung on a Roman cross for your sins and for my sins, thus paying the penalty that we could never pay in a thousand lifetimes? What was it precisely that has earned your ambivalence to which each of us overwhelmed by our guilt and shame could only wilt wilt before the majesty and knowing gaze of our creator if Israel was prone to treat God's great acts of salvation and deliverance as light matters at times forgettable at other times wearisome We too, brothers and sisters, we too are prone to treat God's greatest act of salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God given for us, sinners. We can treat it as of little consequence in our daily lives. But the remedy, the remedy for forgetful and ungrateful sinners is not a new word. It's not another gospel or a new gimmick. Rather, the remedy is to hear again with hearts of faith to hear again that same gospel message which humbles sinners to the ground and raises them to the heavens that same gospel message that we're prone to forget, Jesus Christ died for me. For it is in this gospel alone that we find what the Apostle Paul calls the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Strikingly, we hear in this courtroom drama not only God's subpoena, Not only the prosecution, but we hear finally a plea. Did you hear the plea? It's there in verses six to eight. The Lord's case against his people is sufficient to demonstrate their guilt. And the people's response in verse six reveals the sufficiency of God's evidence because notice that what follows, in what follows, there's no defense. There's no justification. There's no explanation. There's no appeal to attenuating circumstances or different perspectives. Oh, Lord, you're just looking at it wrong. Notice where the hearts of the people go. Israel's response turns to the possibility of atonement. Do you see it? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? In other words, what, Israel asks, what can I possibly do to make my way back into the presence of my creator and my God? What will he accept? What will God accept from me to make me acceptable to him again? Understandably, the first thing that comes to mind is the burnt offering. The burnt offering was Israel's most basic offering, also called the Holocaust offering because it was entirely consumed on the altar. The burnt offering provided an atonement for a sinner, a covering for those who wish to enter the presence of a holy God but perhaps suspecting that a burnt offering was not enough, the defendant's mind then turns to uh, something that is perhaps of more valuable, namely a calf a year old. A calf a year old was not a typical burnt offering, but would have been considered as something more valuable, something more precious. What a calf be sufficient to atone for sin and with this question I want you to see the direction the defendant's heart is going our hearts go in the very same direction what is this direction can I find something valuable enough that my sins would be forgiven and that my iniquity would be no more He's upping the ante with every question. You can almost hear the fear. Can you hear the desperation mounting? Fear that a calf a year old may not be sufficient. Desperate to find something, anything that could stand as a substitute. The questioner moves from from, uh, quality to quantity. He says... Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? You know, few in the ancient world uh, would, except kings perhaps, would have had the means to offer thousands of rams. And 10,000s of rivers of oil was a, an obvious impossibility. So why mention it? Why mention it? Even if the standard is an impossibility, the human heart wants to know what it is. What would be sufficient to atone for my sins? We do this, I think, because knowing a standard. Even if the standard is an impossibility, just knowing a standard offers the illusion that there's something I can do to atone for my sins. In the second half of verse 7, we hear the final plea. It's the final offer. It's an offer that is as horrifying as it is honest. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, will, would God accept the ultimate sacrifice? A life for a life. Though it continues to be debated, child sacrifice s- seems to have been rare both in Israel and in her neighbors. Uh, however, it was not unknown. King Ahaz in Second Kings sixteen offers his son, we're told, as a sacrifice. And most famously, King Manasseh of Judah, we're told, ber- burned his son as an offering in Second Kings twenty one verse six. I don't, however, think we're, we're meant to hear in Micah's imagined dialogue here a genuine offer to sacrifice one's own child. But what I believe we're, we're meant to hear is, is a cry of absolute desperation. Desperation that suspects that maybe there, there's not anything at all that I can do to atone for my sins. Micah's dialogue here taps into the basic human fear, at times muted, if not suppressed altogether, but which is always present and always haunting that asks, what is the cost of my life? What is the price of admission to divine blessedness? Do I have anything in me? Is there anything I can do To hear those words from God, accepted, loved. The questioner receives his answer. The prophet utters what are perhaps the most famous lines in the entire book. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness And to walk humbly with your God. Notice that the prophet does not say he has told you, O Israel. He says he has told you, O man. And with this expression, O man, the prophet is expanding God's salvation beyond the walls of Israel. Those walls delimited by Torah and the Mosaic Covenant. It is not Israel alone, but mankind as a whole to whom Micah says, he has told you. This command to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God in, in humility is not a command that is exclusive to Israel, but summarizes the law of God. That law written on the heart of every man, every woman, every child, everyone who bears his image. But notice that the prophet also says, He has told you. Past tense. He has told you. The answer that the questioner is scrambling to discover, you see, is not a secret, a secret guarded by the religious elite, or a mystery discerned only by the spiritually sensitive. He has told you clearly implies that you already have the answer. God's word is sufficiently clear. It has always been clear. He has told you. Israel's problem, you see, is not an information problem. It's a heart problem. It's a will problem. What does the Lord require of you? With this, we come to the prophet's most striking claim, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is what the Lord requires. He requires justice. Justice is what Israel refused to do. A refusal that Micah has been denouncing time and time again throughout his his book. Justice was to uphold the cause of the poor. To protect the vulnerable. To deal, deal fairly in business. This is the sense of the Hebrew word translated here as justice. Actions. Actions which create an environment for human flourishing. Justice is not a disposition of the heart, a state of mind that knows what's right and wrong, fair and unfair. Justice refers to action. Action which establishes and promotes equity between man and man and woman and woman. It seeks order as God created it. And from that order emerges life and abundance and joy. Do justice, the prophet says. Love mercy. The word for mercy here is the Hebrew word chesed. Here we are. You knew that you couldn't invite an Old Testament professor without hearing at least one Hebrew word, so this is it for the day, chesed. Chesed. It's a word whose meaning includes mercy but goes beyond our notional concepts of of mercy to include steadfast love or loyalty. God is a God of chesed. This is how he reveals himself to Moses when he reveals his name, his very identity. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness. To love chesed, therefore, is to know and to love the God who is himself the God of chesed. Unlike doing justice, loving mercy is an inward disposition. It is a disposition that first loves the God of mercy and then turns to extend that mercy to others as, one, as those who bear the image of God who is chesed itself. And finally, Micah concludes his summary of man's obligation saying, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God, brothers and sisters, is the posture of faith. Walking with God expresses fellowship with God, likeness to God, just as we tend to take on the character and the manners of close friends. Those who walk with God come to resemble him. We become like that which we worship. As God loves justice, so too do those who walk closely with him. As God does righteousness, so also must those who belong to him. Walking with God is an orientation of one's entire life. A life lived as one aligned with God, obedient to his word, seeking his will, and above all, trusting him. In all things. What is striking about the prophet's answer is that he responds to the questioner saying, in effect, your calculus is all wrong. The Lord doesn't want something from you, he wants you. He doesn't want your sacrifices, he wants your very heart and your very life. In other words, what the Lord desires from sinful people are lives transformed by his grace. And the prophet lays this before Israel not at all as a way for them to earn their salvation as if works of justice and hearts that cherish mercy somehow merit God's favor and blessing. Rather, the prophet sets before them a portrait of a life that has been transformed by the grace and mercy and steadfast love of God. This is what it looks like. A life that has been transformed by God's grace, that has understood and believed the message preached by the countless acts, righteous acts of the Lord, is a life that will in turn act justly, love mercy, and seek to walk in humility and faithfulness with Almighty God. The psalmist puts it like this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Similarly, the Apostle Paul could write to the Romans, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in closing, perhaps we could summarize the prophet's response like this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And repent in keeping with your faith in the God who has done great things for you. Will God accept your firstborn for your transgression? The fruit of your loins for your soul? The answer the Bible gives is no. He would accept his own. For only the incarnate son's perfect life and substitutionary death could atone for the sins of the world and merit eternal life for those given to him by the Father. God would give his own son for our sins so that we, by his grace, might day in and day out do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. So the most pressing question for us today brothers and sisters, is not will God accept our firstborn to atone for our sins, but will we accept his as he is freely offered in the gospel? Is there an atonement we can make that will pay the price for our sins? No, not at all. But God, who is rich in mercy, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The righteous For the unrighteous, so that, as Paul tells us, we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved of Christ, there is nothing more to be done. What was impossible for us is possible with God, and God has yet again, once and for all, made a way where there is no way. We are saved, we are forgiven. We are accepted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful reminder that you provide a way, a way for hopeless sinners to enter your presence, to delight in your fullness and to know the blessing of your countenance today, tomorrow, and forevermore. We thank you for the doctrines of grace. Would you impress them more deeply on our hearts as we seek to worship you and to follow you and to walk with you in humility more closely. Do this work for the sake of your son, for we ask in his name. Amen.